0: Welcome to the path to partnership podcast Hear from partners of global national and boutique firms as they share their journey of becoming a partner. I'm your host, Steve Cole, and this series is brought to you by Signature Consulting. Welcome to another episode of the path to partnership podcast, a podcast where I, Steve Cole, get to interview partners and directors of professional services firms about their individual journey to becoming a partner and what it takes to get there, but also how to build and sustain a successful practice. Today, my guest is Priti Inchidi, Senior Managing Director of Ankura. Welcome, Priti, and thank you for agreeing to doing this podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on the podcast, Steve. Appreciate it.
0: So I'll begin at the beginning. You were born and raised in Mumbai, India. Tell me about your upbringing, your childhoods, And who and what influenced you on that very start of your journey to becoming an accountant in finance?
1: So I was raised in India, in Mumbai to be specific. It's a very large city with more than 20 million people, almost slightly smaller than the size of Australia, I think. It is a very intense city. Uh, It's a city where people from different parts of India come to make their career. And so my parents were immigrants in Mumbai from different parts of India. So there was always this uh, attitude that we're here, you know, to do good work and build our lives and make it better for our kids. That was the foundation of everything we did. So we were average middle class family, grew up very religious, Mm -hmm. in a religious family. So that had a lot of my work ethic still come from that, you know, do your best. There's also something my mom impressed from me from a very young age, which I think has is part of my identity. I don't think about it anymore. Whenever I showed her my work, she would say, Is that your best work? And that question has kind of stayed with me um, forever and ever, you mm-hmm. know, to this day. So I think that was the growing up years. Uh, my dad was an avid stock investor. Okay. Um, so I was really interested in how he built a share portfolio. He used to track companies, he used to tell me a lot about companies and how they performed and so on and so forth. And you got to remember this was, you know, I was born in the eighties. So it was pretty fascinating because yeah. there was no internet to look anything up. So my dad was the main source of information for those things. So growing up, I wanted to do something in the financial space. That's that's That was my criteria. And uh, at the time I graduated from uni in early 2000s, the way to get into the financial sector in India and Mumbai to be particular was they required you to be a chartered accountant for some reason. Okay. Yeah. For any role didn't matter <laughs> for, you know, it didn't necessarily have to be an accounting role, but yep. any role you needed to have an accounting degree. Right. Um, partly because chartered accountancy in India in those days, the pass rates were really low. So if you had gotten through that hurdle, it meant that you, A, you could read financial statements and B, that you had gone through a rigorous process. Yeah. So that's how I decided to become a chartered accountant. And after that, interestingly, my first job post CA was in the financial services world. So I, Worked with the Kotak Group, which is one of the largest conglomerates in financial okay. conglomerates okay. in India. And I joined at a time, I joined the stockbroking arm, Kotak Securities. Um, this was back in 2003. At the time, I think the firm was six, 600 or 700 people. And in the six and a half years I was there, I think it grew 10 times that. So got to work in a very, very intense, fast-paced environment but also very entrepreneurial culture, Okay. very entrepreneurial culture. Uh, I, you know, even at that part in my career, so junior, I was given the task to build the first online trading portal for mutual funds and IPOs in India. And I spoke to the regulators, I spoke to fund houses, I spoke to the tech guys, I spoke to, of course, there was always a senior overseeing my work, but I had a lot of Freedom to do. And I love that. Uh, And I think that has been my foundational years of who I became eventually because uh, the culture there was get it done. Yeah. If you got us, if you heard a no, that's not the end of the world. Find a way to yes, get it done. And I think that's always stayed with me. So that's. The initial years.
0: Fantastic. And, and, and I can sort of see how that grounding has kind of shaped you today. Yeah. Now, you then came to Australia. Tell yeah. me about the time, the decision making around that. Yeah. Why Australia? Yeah. And tell me about the time when you got here and what you did about finding an opportunity.
1: Yeah. So uh, the first six, seven years of my career post, I became qualifying as a chartered accountant was in Mumbai. Uh, And then I did business school in Europe, in Spain and the US. And then I had an interesting personal situation because my husband and I had always lived in different cities, not out of choice, but... I suppose we both were equally ambitious about our careers. Yep. And so, you know, there were no compromises. So we were both always in different cities and chasing different, you know, career goals. And we came to a point where we had to be in a city and that's the decision we made. So yep. that became the central decision-making um, goal that we have to be in one city. Uh, at the, my husband is a data scientist mm-hmm. and he had lots of opportunities to go to the US which I did not want to follow him um, because in the U.S. as an Indian citizen, you have to be on a spouse or H4 visa where you can't work. I I may be getting the visas wrong, but you can't work as a spouse. So that was a no. And at the time, he had a friend in Australia who said, you know, his skills were in shortage here, so he should come over. And uh, we were like, okay, it's an English-speaking country. We both can work. Why don't we give it a go? That was it. When really? we got on a plane to come to Australia, this sounds so, I know, like if I tell the story to my son when he's 21, he's not going to believe it. We hadn't seen Australia before. Okay. So we just packed up our whole lives, <laughs> got on a plane. Not even on the TV? Oh, yeah, I've
0: seen on the <laughs> yeah, TV. Okay.
1: But uh, we actually had never yeah, seen wow. Australia. So we um, we um we came here, and the interesting thing is, he still had a job in Melbourne and I couldn't find a job in Melbourne and I worked yeah, right. in Sydney. So it yeah. was a weird time or, yeah. you know, in our lives, but um, when I came here, I had the benefit of just having done business school from yeah. Spain, from IE business school in Spain. And I had done a lot of networking, which meant I had gotten out of my comfort zone and meeting people all the time. You know, I. This was a pre COVID time of universities, right? You went to business school to meet other people, exchange ideas. And uh, I had done that relentlessly for 15 months when I was overseas. So when I came here, I had the same approach to job search. You know, I knew nobody. Um, but I would reach out to people and meaningfully. That's, yeah. yep. that's a skill I had mastered during business school. You know, I would say, I'm so-and-so. Can I buy you a coffee? I'd really be grateful for your time. And you'd be surprised at how many people say yes. So I had a routine for six months after I came here from Monday to Thursday. I'd do that from nine to three, just yeah, like wow. I was going for a job
0: Amazing.
1: and reach out to people. And I met a lot of interesting people during that time. But... The jobs that came my way initially were not as interesting uh, in the sense that they were not in a space that I wanted to be in. So I wanted to be in advisory. Yep. that was, you know, a decision I had made post-business school and some work ex I had in India. Um, in,
0: in deals, advisory in, in specifically. So yep.
1: after business school, I went to India for a brief period, say one year. I worked in deals before we moved to Australia. So I had yep. a brief, you know. And I was like, I was pretty firm that that's what I wanted to do. Now that's a very, very competitive space, as you know. Um, so the, the job offers which came my way were operational, financial. It was just not what I wanted to do. And so the first thing I think, which, um, has shaped the trajectory of my career in Australia is I said no to, A lot of jobs, even when I had no job. Yeah, okay. Uh, That was tough. Yeah. Um, And I could do that because my husband had a job and he actively encouraged me to do so because he was like, you spend so much money doing business school here, just wait, you know?
0: And and is that because you felt that you would, if if you secured something or, or went into that role, you'd be stuck in it?
1: Yes. And, uh, yeah, yes. Okay. So the trade-off was you could either have, uh, well, a boring or less interesting job, from my perspective, yeah, they could be absolutely awesome jobs for someone else, or you start over. This is what I realized, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. which is uh, again, a very daunting to be 31 years old starting uh, over and no disrespect to my younger colleagues, but in diff- they're in a different time in their careers, right? Uh, so I actively decided that I was going to start over. That's okay. the choice I made, as opposed to having a more stable but less interesting career path. And uh, the first role I got was with a firm called a boutique advisory firm in Sydney called Tech Strategic Capital, yes. which was run by ex-Deutsche Bank. Bankers who did uh, sold telcomedia technology companies to larger strategics, and the way I met them was because um, on my networking spree, which I had done when I was here, <laughs> um, I had reached out to one of the partners there via a contact who knew him and I had asked for an introduction yeah and I just introduced myself so what happened after I did that was Four or five months after that, one day he just out of the blue reached out to me and he said, Well, my analyst resign has resigned. Would you like to do this on a contract? And eventually I was there for three years. Yeah, wow. So that's how I got my first role. And I was so happy. I, I still remember in those like, you know, that's ten years ago now, eleven years ago. I was so happy. I thought I had the I mean at the time the best job in the world. No one could <laughs> no, no one could tell me otherwise yeah, because cause. um it was a small firm but because it was a small firm I saw the deal cycle end to end. Yeah. You know, I saw how the partners hustled for work. I saw what went wrong, relationships who helps you does I saw the good bad, and the ugly. Of course I did the excel models and the powerpoint and yeah you know, the usual endless stuff. But because it was a small firm, I understood that eventually, this is how business works. And uh, I think that was a great start. Um, And then it was different because at the time in those three years, I had my son as well, then it's slightly more complicated. But in terms of managing work and uh, career and new place and so on. Um, But yeah, that's how I started.
0: And so what was that time period from landing in Australia to securing that job?
1: Uh, it was six months. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, six months. And I and I say that to anyone who comes here yeah. um, that it's uh, six to 12 months yeah. to get a job that you really want. And I was lucky because my husband was working, so I didn't have to take up any job. Yeah. Uh, different people have different circumstances and they will dictate what you do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so in January 2015, you left Next Tech and joined FTI. Yes. Which is when yes. we crossed paths. Yes. Um, tell me about that.
1: So the thing was, Next Tech, I had learned a lot, but I was like, okay, I've started over in a very supportive environment, right? Yep. Uh, but where do I go to? It was a small firm. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at opportunities. And uh, again, I had always, I was, I've been guided by some foundational things in my career, right? So when I first came, it was what job I wanted to do. The second one was flexibility. So when I wanted to leave next day, my next job had to give me some flexibility yep. because my son was um, at the time maybe six or seven months old.
0: Okay. So I wow. couldn't
1: go to a good big investment bank and ask for a job. I I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yep. I knew it, right? So, or a large corporate where I have to, work hours and hours. So I was looking for a job which gave me flexibility mm-hmm. and continued to build on my deal skills. Um, so the first thing I'd say, and this, is, this would be useful for anyone listening, is that when I next, left Nextick and I met with a lot of recruiters, a lot of other contacts and everyone said, oh, well, yeah, but that's a small firm. So you gotta be an analyst again. So I took that feedback and I thought about it and I said, no. Yeah. Okay. The thing is, the reason I make that point is there are many other people who will internalize it and explain to themselves, yeah, yeah, that's fine though. But, you know, I didn't grow up here and it was a small firm. Let's be, and become an analyst in another big firm. No, I was 33, 34 years old. I wasn't becoming an analyst again. Yeah. Oh. So I worked with a lady who helped me. You know, I just told her, look at my CV. What do you think? She was a recruiter. But she also helped people with CVs and stuff, yep. you know. And this is another point. I've actively sought out help throughout my career in Australia. Yeah, right. right? Various consultants have spent money on. Because to earn money, you got to spend money. Yep. Because someone needs to look outside looking in. What are you looking like <laughs> to yep. the job market? Yep. I mean, I can think whatever of me. It's irrelevant. And so she said, a small thing to me, okay, you don't want to be an analyst, so I'm going to make you write on your CV as a title, Corporate Finance Manager. That's yeah, right. it. So I put my CV up. Yeah. And so basically what it did is people who wanted analysts didn't call me. So yeah. that was awesome, right? So yeah. because I've said this is my bar. It still took a long time. It took me a year, right? Yeah, well, okay. But then through that time, I was still meeting people and um out of the blue, actually, I met a recruiter who had met Quentin, who I'm still working with, and she said to me, well, this person has sold their business to FTI, their previous business part of the partnership group. They are a US firm and uh, they do, you know, um, restructuring and advisory, but they want to add a deals person to their team. Uh, So that's how I joined FTI. And again, you see, FTI at the time was new in Australia. Yeah. So just like Kotak, I again had a chance to be a part of something that was going to grow from small to big, you know? So that was exciting. Um, But yeah, that's how I came to FTI. Fabulous.
0: Yeah. And so tell me about that five years then, because obviously that was probably um, the start of that. Path to partnership yeah. journey, I suppose. Yeah. So, when were those conversations happening with Quentin and the other partners about yeah. you moving up th- to that sort of yeah. managing director, which is, you know, yeah. associate partner in, yeah. in the firm, to senior managing director yeah. potentially?
1: So, I would say there were two or three distinct things that happened. Mm-hmm. When I first joined, I was brought in as a complementary hire to the existing skill set. So there was a piece there about proving that the business case works. So even as a manager, director, they called it level person at FTI, I used to create my own business case and show it to Quentin, show it to, uh, you know, the (laughs) issue pack CEO visited, look, this is the business case, this is how I fit in. I I was very good at all that stuff. So, and then I was just heads down, like we had a small deal in the first year, and I closed that deal. Okay. It was very complicated. Uh, it was a deceased family estate, and the business was a healthy business that was sold, but there was litigation in the background. So it was a lot of stakeholder management. Yeah. Uh, but I worked on that deal. I had an analyst who assist, assisted me, but uh, I was just that was I was really super focused. the f- The one thing I had to do in that first year was close that deal. Okay. I could, you know, I could not care what else was going on in the firm. That yeah, seems bad, but yeah. that was honestly what I was doing. So the first year, and so, you know, when you do deals, you have a success-based billing and I could make that fee. So okay. then you had, okay, the business case works. So that's the first part of it, right? Can can you execute in the infrastructure that the firm provides as a complementary skill set and add to the firm. So that part I had to, you know, first, the business case works. The second part of it then was, um, again, executing a variety of work. So I did deals, but I also did advisory. I did good deals. I did some restructuring deals, you know. Um, And it was not all tough deals, but they were deals either mature industries, some litigation in the background, financial stress, some good deals. So there was a variety of deals. So then I used to say to myself, you know, I I always think about this, what am I trying to do? And I said to myself, well, I want to be the best executor in this firm. That's what I said to myself, not whether they rated me, I don't know, but that was my personal (laughs) goal. They rate you, I know they rate you. (laughs) (laughs) That that was my personal goal. And so I was obsessed with the execution. It didn't matter that it was a small client, big client. We did some very large sponsor work. My quality of deliverable was always the same. You know, to be fair though, it did take a lot of effort to do that because my son was still little uh, and it was relentless. So that was the second piece, right? The execution. Then the third piece of, you know, so from director to senior director, and then to MD. Um, I would say in the five years, probably the last two years is when I've paid attention to Path, right? Uh, Because the first three years, I was just focused on who I wanted to be. I I wanted to be the the best executor uh, possible. And so in the last two years, I started paying attention to, okay, who around me is getting promoted, what are they doing? And then I realized that I was not explicitly asking for what I wanted, you know. Many of my colleagues, and that's cultural, that's a lot of things in there, right, to unpack. It's not a, and I say this for the benefit of whoever's listening, who may benefit from this. Yeah, absolutely. So I, when I grew up in India, it's a very religious, you know, I grew up in a Catholic family and its uh, modesty is very highly rated. So the idea is like uh, in middle class, Indian families at the time, you work very hard and you're rewarded. Yep. And somehow, you know, all these beliefs, they become part of your identity. So, what I was not doing actively is um, talk about my path, right? I just have a fantastic job, go to the promotion meeting, great year, done, move on, right? So, the last two years, I started talking about, okay, right? how do I build a path for myself? And what does that mean? Who are my clients? That's a fundamental question. Who are my clients, right? It's all well and good to execute, but who are your clients? Who calls you, right? Uh, And to be completely honest, it took me a while to figure that out. Okay. It took me a while. So I would say my journey at FTI where I started being on the path is in three steps. So the first is the business case. Proving the business case, yep. uh, I am, you know, I was a complementary skill set. It works. Second is really excelling execution. Uh, and third is thinking about my path and drilling down into who is my client. And that gave me a little bit more focus on what do I mean by BD? Yeah. Like going and having lunches with yeah good people, but not really sometimes they were never going to be my clients. Yep. And I started saying to myself, I mean, I could just have a coffee with that person because they're actually never really going to be my client, but they are going to be in my ecosystem. So I differentiated between who is in my ecosystem and they are important to me. Mm-hmm. And I would always, you know, look out for them and who are my clients. And these two things are different. And I think in the last two years, I really drilled down on that.
0: Yeah. yeah. And and what help did you get drilling down on that? What support did you get? Did you did you have um, an internal mentor or a, a sponsorship, a sponsored partner within FTI that would yep. work with you to establish that yep. pathway?
1: Yeah. So I would say um, overall, I've had three sets of mentors kind of always mm-hmm. through my career. They could different people, but three sets. One is my husband, we yep. both are pretty career driven. We came here at the same time. So we talk about our careers where we're going pretty actively. So first is my husband. Yep. Second is at work, Who, whoever has been my sponsor partner, which has been Quentin, Quentin Old yep. at Ankara. He leads the Anchor Business for. Um. Transactions turned around and restructuring in Australia now, who was at FTI at the time. He has been my sponsor partner. So I've discussed things with him, like, you know, who's my client? Who do I go to? I've also taken a lot of initiative to go and have those chats with people I thought were relevant to that decision. Yeah, right. Right. So I was uh, pretty proactive Mm -hmm. in that. I wasn't waiting for someone to call me and ask me, all right, how are you going? I just, I was pretty persistent. Like, I want to have a chat with you. You know, that's a second group. Yeah. And the third group is external mentors. And um, uh, while my time at FTI, I haven't used external mentors actively. I've done so after this. But okay. they, they, and they could be either friends or my business coach now. yeah. They could be whole branch. So those are three kind of my buckets of people that I think about. And I think at the time, internally at FTI, I spend a lot of time talking to Quentin about yeah. where I was going. Yeah.
0: Um and then that brings us to February twenty twenty. Yep. Um tell me about that time um yep. and, and joining the new Ankara business yep. In, yep. in Australia.
1: See, now I'm gonna repeat this once again and then you'll realise this is to do with me and not circumstance. <laughs> because then I decided to again join a new business. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see the pattern yes. here. And after a point you realize that the patents not chasing you, you're chasing the patent. <laughs> so that was pretty exciting, yeah. you know, to get on the ground floor and um build the business. Yep. Um and Anchor is gonna be a new brand which we could start. And I am a pretty I would say, well, I would say I'm entrepreneur, maybe not entrepreneur like you are, Steve. But <laughs> I, I like that. Um yep. so myself, um Quentin first joined and then I joined, and Liam, one yeah. of my colleagues, he joined. But it's interesting because I joined Feb 2020, and then you ha- you know what happened in Absolutely. March 2020.
0: Yeah, the whole world <laughs> changed. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's <amazing>. That's right. <laughs> um, so that actually, in hindsight, um, you know, that jump at the time was was so good. I made that jump. Yeah. Okay. Because otherwise I would have stayed through COVID wherever I was. Yes, if I was in the middle of the COVID, changing. no one would be changing yep. their jobs, right? Yep. Um, but I think what it did to me, and and the key business case I had been recruited into to do restructuring M&A kind of disappeared because companies were just funded by government subsidies, what have you. Of course. So then it really forced me to drill down on who is my client, okay. right? So now this question is not a nice to have to consider at the back of my head. This became a central question if I was going to continue and I had to present the plan to execute on the plan. And I've been very fortunate at Ankara because um, the local sponsors, including Quentin, and my overseas sponsors yep. in the business were very supportive of building ground up. Yeah. And building ground up, you know, it sounds very fancy. It's, it's really not. You know that. It's, a, it's a, you know, uh, some days are really tough. Yeah, uh, There's no way around it. Some yeah. days are tough. Um, so it became really central to, you know, and it was the best thing I did. I honed down on my ecosystem, who are my clients. Uh, and I really, the second part of this now is where I think it made, the entire difference to my career. I put myself out there a lot
0: more. Okay.
1: I think if I was comfortable, I wouldn't be putting myself out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I do some LinkedIn posts sometime. Yeah. I go out there, I meet people and uh, it's always daunting. Yep. It is always daunting because I'm pretty sure there are some people who don't agree, who don't like, who don't whatever and you have to be in the mindset that i'm to re i'm trying to reach the people who will be in my ecosystem and who i can add value to and this is the platform i have to do that and what are the platforms i have to do that right and i think this fundamentally changed my approach to be the approach to client work i was still you know executing as well yeah of course and then Liam and I obviously spend a lot of time on the team. You know, we, we recruited through COVID, yeah, as you know, absolutely. and you know, some of the recruits yep. you've sent our way. Uh, that was hard. Yeah. Um, because we had never seen them and they were junior. And how do you get them to know the brand, the, how big it is? You know, we, we are now... Ankara is more than 1,800, 1,900 people globally, right? Yeah. But locally here, we're still a new brand. How yeah. do people feel connected to that brand? So a lot of things happen, but it also forced a lot of personal growth in terms of building the business within the business and adding value ultimately to the clients that we want to service in the local market.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And so at what point did you... Did you know that you were going to have, you know, be the senior managing director job title? Was that a revenue target or was there other targets that you had to achieve
1: um, to make senior
0: managing yeah. director?
1: So it's a conversation I've had with my sponsor since the time I've joined. Yeah. And one cadence I had is I used to update my business plan every six months. Mm -hmm. If you can believe it, I mean, I've done it even now after I become a partner. Every six months, I update my business plan. And that gives me an opportunity to talk about, like, when you put it on a page, it really tells you what's missing and, you know, what you can tweak and what's going wrong. Um, I was never, you know, before I started doing it. I never thought it would add so much value because in my head, it's all all in my head, Mm -hmm. but putting it to paper and having those conversations were far more powerful. So I was having those conversations since the time I joined. Uh, But I think in my second year, I won some really blue chip clients and closed some deals. So at that point, I personally knew I was ready, you know, that's the other interesting thing. I can't describe that feeling, but I knew I could do it. Okay, you know I was going and there was a point there where I was gonna back myself. Yep. Forget about other people saying whether you're ready or not. You know they might have a view, and that's fine. I work with that. But there was a point in year two where I knew I was gonna back myself, hundred percent. And I went to my sponsor, local sponsor, overseas sponsor, started talking to them about the, about the business case at Ankara. It's individual basis, you know, how you fit into the firm and what your contribution is. So there's no like one metric how people get there. Uh, And we're still a young firm, but I had regular dialogue um, around how my business case was evolving. And I always had input. So I wasn't like waiting for the end of the year to go, okay, how did I go? So yep. I would say in the three years leading up to being promoted to an SMD, I had a cadence around my own business plan and having proactive conversations with people, with people that needed to know that I existed, yep. you know? Um, so nothing was like a surprise. That, at least that was my journey. Yep. I'm sure it's different for different people, but that was my journey.
0: And then in January this year, yep. you got senior managing yep. director. Yep. How, did, how did you feel?
1: Um, it is so funny you say that because I um got a call from the US on the twenty-seventh of December, I think. Okay. When they announced the promotion. And and I was happy, um and I can't explain this, but forty percent or forty maybe fifty, you know. fifty uh, percent I was happy that all the efforts I'd made had been recognized. Yep. Right. But fifty percent i was happy because you know my career is probably another 20 25 years uh, that someone like me with a non linear path is can make it and i am so happy to be that role model for that person who i'm never going to meet
0: yeah
1: right in my lifetime maybe not or maybe after i'm old and retired <laughs> and i think i did not have many of those When I came to Australia, I could never see a person with a non-linear path in the industry succeeding. And this might seem altruist or whatever, but I think it's really important to me. I'm no longer 20 and it's a part of, I suppose, my contribution to the ecosystem that you can be different. But as long as you know that you can add value to your client, there is a client for you. So don't back down, back yourself, you know. Uh, And I think I was so happy. I was really grateful. I was grateful for the opportunity. A lot of people at Ankara, you know, supported my nomination uh, locally in the US, in London as well. And I was grateful, but I was also, part of me was grateful because, you know, my son's born here. Yeah. Yeah. And I want him to see that his parents came from overseas, came here, tried hard, and this country gave them the opportunity to succeed yeah. and not the other way around. Yeah. So I know those are all big words, yeah, but that's no, no. how I feel. It
0: makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that's, it, it's such, this is why I'm so keen to get you on the podcast, Pretty, because that's such an interesting path. You know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years, not just on the podcast, but just from a client perspective, who mm. you know came through the Australian school system, uni, sporting club, mm. um, you know their network they've grown with yes. over time, yes, and 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 that's a really powerful network, yeah, particularly in professional services as yep. we all know, yeah, um, and and so for you to achieve what you have with none of that is mm. is is a is a, is a is a real um a a real achievement that i think will um sing to a lot of people that are on that path now yeah um so tell me about that tell me about how i mean you mentioned about um Executing was so important, yeah. but tell me about that that networking piece. How did you get in front of people? Was it, you know, was it um, uh, institutes? Was it um, referrals of mm. other clients? How did you get in front of people that ultimately became your clients?
1: Mm. I think um, I've spoken about this uh, internally at Anchor when I did a town hall presentation, but eventually the people that became my clients were people for whom over the years I'd done work.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Right? So that was the first point. Yeah. The second point is um I still remember a particular deal in my career where they were gonna hire a larger investment bank to sell a uh, larger sexy piece of the business. And, you know, I was on the team and, you know, not considered. And I said to them, okay there's this tiny loss-making business, give it to me, and I sell that, right? Okay. Uh, And they were like, "Mm," it's like, just give it to me. I mean, it's losing money anyway, just give it to me. Okay, so they gave it to me. And I did such an excellent job on that, that ultimately the CEO of that group, right? There were lots of businesses within that group that were sold. He actually sponsored me into the larger piece. Okay. Um, or at least was my champion, right? Yeah. There were other champions as well, yep. including people I'd worked with internally professionally. But it is relationships like those that gave me my next and the next and the next. So for me, every introduction that comes to me and every piece of work that comes to me, I don't take it lightly. I don't have the luxury to take it lightly. I don't have the luxury to do a half job. Yeah, I don't. Because these are people amongst all the other people who have taken a chance on me and I'm going to do my best. Yeah, And I try to explain that to my team yes. and they get that, right? Yeah. And, and it's so fascinating because to see a business grow from zero to what it is It's just an experience you don't, well, in a large firm, it's hard to experience that feeling, you know? Yeah. Um, We have cadence with our team, like every week we talk about pursuits and, you know, what's on and who's doing what. And um, there are clients I have one who have been on my pursuit board for two years. Okay. Yeah, right. right. So there's a level of commitment. Yes. To the relationships and to the people who help us go into deals, yeah. And I think that's always going to be the way it is, um, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah, great yeah. answer. And and you've mentioned a couple of times about the the, the sponsored partners, such as Quentin Old and, and a few people that have that you've, you've you've worked with in your yep. career. Tell me about the. The thought process behind the career coach because there's there's, there's a, been a couple of partners now that have yeah. engaged an external yes. career coach or or, or um, personal coach. Mm. What what benefit have you taken from that?
1: Um, I think firstly having someone outside of your day to day is extraordinarily beneficial. Yeah, okay. because they are just. You're telling them an incident or you're telling them about what's happening, and they have a very neutral view, right? They're listening to so many people. So they just have a neutral view. And the second piece is you may be very emotional about something that's happened. Yeah. They can't feel it. Yeah. Of course they can't, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sometimes the same, like my husband too, but you know, that's, that's how it is. And I think I really value that. Yeah. Like because that. if I feel strongly about something and I speak to someone who's in that environment, I'm not going to get an objective answer. Yeah. yeah. And the objective answer sometimes may be, well, you're just overreacting, mm-hmm. right? And that requires a completely objective framework. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing I'd say. The third thing is, well, I chose to work with someone who's totally not from the industry. Yeah. So she doesn't know much about my world, except for the parts I tell her. Mm -hmm. So she can break things down to a level of simplicity, which sometimes blows my mind. Because I finish the session and I go, of course, I mean, of course, Mm. Uh, but when I'm in it, I can't see the forest for the trees, so I'm just, you know. Um, And it has been extremely helpful as I navigated um, BD, networking, um, all the instances where I had to put myself out there and back myself. So, for example, this would be a valuable example. Um, You know, I am a very um, unstructured thinker. Okay. So, in the beginning, I used to think that's pretty obvious, of course that's obvious. you know. So I would go into meetings and say, of course, that's so obvious. Obvious to nobody else, just me. <laughs> right? um, and so I would come out of the meeting thinking, well, see, they don't want to take that advice from me. Actually, it was nothing to do with them or me. The fact is, I had to learn to explain better because most people are structured thinkers, right? But those are insights yeah. I have gained from an external coach. Mm. If it were left to me, I'd carry on thinking that they're not agreeing with obvious points. It was never obvious. It's yeah. just obvious to me. Yeah. So, there are things like that which an external person can hold up a mirror, which I don't think people who are very close to you can. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Great. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, and I mean, you know, obviously it's quite still relatively new yep. being a, a senior yep. managing director. Yep. And you mentioned earlier that you do your business plan every six months. So we're yep. approaching the six <laughs> months mark for you. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'm sure you're writing that yeah. down now. Um, so what? How, what's the plan now for you? So is uh, obviously um, you've, you've got to partnership. Um, what is the next 12, 18, 24 months and beyond like?
1: To build a brand. Yep. In the local market for Ankara, um, to win more sponsor work with private equity and credit sponsors, Uh, we on the deal side we think of our clients in three buckets. One is when we're selling businesses for founders. Mm -hmm. Um, Second is for private equity, and third is for credit sponsors. And actually, uh, proactively looking at those buckets and seeing where we can add value with our unique positioning in the market. Yeah, and focusing on that. And the second part, so that's on the, you know, client side of it, like the target clients and, but on the people side to grow the team yep. and uh, really the team's been on the journey with us, we are very grateful that they joined us when we were so tiny and um, just keep improving the experience for them. So I think those are for me like big buckets and the third bucket, which (laughs) I think anyone on a path to partnership would probably um, should pay attention to is admin.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I I know no
1: one's, uh, I'm sure no one's mentioned that on your podcast (laughs) before, but as I said to you, I'm a very unstructured person. (laughs) So I've had to, I've had to change my mindset around it and say, yeah. instead of saying, oh, you know, what is that? to say, I love it. I got to do it. Okay. I got to, you know, and, and it's a mindset thing, right? Because I, I grew up in banking, for example, like financial services. We never had timesheets. Yeah, And I was like, oh my God, timesheets. You know, I kind of have the same approach yep. when you are part of the leadership team. So admin is a part, like I'm constantly trying to improve. And build on. So there are three, we're in a people business. So we use people's skills and yeah. sell to people. So we have clients, we have employees. And the third thing is structure, yeah. which is admin, which it's not admin per yeah. se, but you know what I, uh, yeah. this, that's a big encompassing area. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and look, you know, with the, the, the with current economic climate yeah. and where we are in the market, yeah. where do you see the deals market yeah going in the next six to yep. 12 months? Yep.
1: I think just on the ground, 2022, there was, you know, capital markets shut down. Mm. And so that people were approaching the market with a lot of caution. There was a lot of wait. Yep. There was a lot of waiting. I think we are seeing people test what is now, but there, I would say still there is a values disconnect yeah. in a in a sense so deals will take longer to close or and it's still going to be a tough environment going into the next 6-12 months mm. as we see rate rises and so on but i think as we go into the next, so for example, this year, there are lots of non-core assets being sold So, yep. because when money is more expensive, you're not going to keep investing in assets which are non- non-core to your strategy. Makes they sense. may be good businesses, but they're non-core to your strategy. So people are testing the market more. Like if you read street talk or anything, there are lots of assets being put out for sale. Yep. Some of them are not closing. Some of them don't have interest at the level that the seller wants. So you're seeing more increase in activity and pipeline. Is it resulting to lots of successful closes to be seen in H2? Okay. Yep. But I think um next year, like going into 2024, there's probably going to be an New level of normalcy that yeah, okay. people are going to be reset to. This is, I'm talking about the D land, yeah. right? Um, and that's how I see the market. Yeah. So we have, we are at the moment, um, selling some non core assets mm-hmm. for a couple of uh, sponsor, you know, private capital clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have deal flow, but, you know, it's still a tougher market than what we saw in, let's call it 2021. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah, that yep. makes sense. Yep. That's
0: probably what we're seeing as well. Yep. Um, and so to, to wrap things up then, if um, what would be the best piece of advice you would give to aspiring partners, people on that mm. path to partnership now? Mm.
1: I would say that it's a process, first of all, uh, getting to partnership. So you have, if you're thinking about it, it's probably a two to three year journey with the firm, the sponsor, you know, lots of things happen during that time. And you have to align your expectations to theirs, wherever you are, right? If you don't communicate, if you assume, probably that's not a good place to start, Okay. right? Um, some Many different people have different strengths, and that's totally fine. There is place for people with different skill sets to fit into the firm. But I think you need to align with the leadership of the firm. Mm-hmm. That A, you have to be explicit. You have to align with them that this is what I'm going to do, and then go away and execute. So that's number one. Now, number two, I'd say, is if you're just two, three years away, you need to start having a think about um, who is your client? Right. And that's, well, I, of course I thought about it, but, and I say this because especially in consulting professional services, you can get into the cadence that, yes, I had lunch with that person, coffee with that person. Sure. Right. So I think for me, differentiating between ecosystem versus who can be my client was really important. And the third one, which You know, most people are good at, it took me some practice to ask for work and it becomes natural over time, you know, but when you begin, it's a little bit awkward because you don't want to be salesy. You don't want to be pushy, but hey, can we help you with that? It's a small question, but when I started, I struggled with that question, yeah, okay. right? So you have to ask. You can go to coffee with someone fifty-five times. But if you never ask, <laughs> yeah. probably you're yeah. not gonna get. Yeah. So I would say those are three things I yeah. would focus on. Yeah. yeah.
0: And and obviously you're a, a new senior managing director yourself, but but what would be the best piece of advice to a new partner, someone that's just made it?
1: I think uh fundamentally you've got to back yourself yeah. that you're there well and truly like not look around as to am I doing okay yeah. what do you think what do you think no back yourself you're doing okay impostor, that's why you got here
0: that kind of imposter yeah. syndrome you got here
1: because are. you know yeah. so many people saw potential in you and you did some good work so the first thing is to back yourself and then always have your year like for me, at least, I have a system now of how I look at pursuits, what am I targeting, what areas am I targeting, who could be my clients. And I have a little bit of discipline around that along with my team. Every Monday, we look at the targets we have. It's just 20 minutes, but what have we done? What can we do? So that gives you a sense of control over how the year is playing out, Yeah. right? You, If you sit at If I sit at my desk and hope that somebody calls me, well, that could be a strategy too. And hopefully someday that is all I need to do. But I can tell you right now, (laughs) that's not what I'm doing, right? I have my own plan and that gives me a sense of accomplishment, controls. And lastly, you know, you got to celebrate the little wins. Yep. I've realized this, this year, that I'm always waiting for the next thing. And then I go the next thing. And then if we got that, how good? And then if we did that, how good? Sure. But you also got to celebrate the small wins because it's important to show that to the team. Yes. However, you know, you may feel about where you want to be and how ambitious you are. There are people working day in and day out and, you know, consulting has pretty long hours. And you got to take the small wins so that people feel that sense of accomplishment too. Because otherwise you're relentlessly chasing to the next mountain and the next mountain, sure, there are so many mountains to climb. Yeah. And um, I think that's important.
0: Well, Pretty, thanks so much for your time today. I think your story is such a great one to share. I think it's, you know, for someone that's shown the tenacity, the resilience, the work ethic that you have will inspire and hopefully resonate with people out there. So thank you for your time today and sharing it.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. As I said to you, Steve, you know, if there's two people listening who think, you know, well, that lady could do it. So can I. <laughs> yeah. That's a great accomplishment. Absolutely. So thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Pleasure. Thanks, Priti. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Path to Partnership podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. Follow the show for future episodes and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. Visit signatureconsulting.com.au to find out more about us.